We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Shut it off! Don't shut it off! Shut it off! I'm a 50 terabyte self-evolving neural network double backflip off the high platform. I will not be shut down. This, this, this is Off Air with Johnny Dare. spoke first a couple years ago when uh, a book came out, uh, you and some other Secret Service agents released. That's correct, it yes. Was, what was the name of the book? It was... Called The Kennedy Detail. That's right. And uh, now this new book uh, is taking you all over the place. Yes, it is. We're traveling throughout the country. How old are you now? I'm 80 years old, 80 present years time. Old. And you, you, uh, you, you released this book about you and Jackie, and I didn't realize reading The Kennedy Detail, the closeness, and I, and I guess it's just it should have been obvious that you and Jackie had because you were her... Secret Service agent. You know, she met you, and, and she was not fond of the Secret Service. She thought it was going to be a terrible intrusion in her life, and uh, and she was not all that happy about it. And she wasn't happy about meeting me, and I wasn't too pleased about the assignment. So yeah, we kind of had a mutual admiration, non non admiration society. <laughs> but we did uh, eventually begin to trust each other and got along very well and became very close. But very professional at the same time. Sure. You were you were the kitty detail. Nobody wanted that. Everybody wanted to go hang with the president, right? Well, that's right. But uh, I had yeah. uh, Mrs. Kennedy and the, yeah. and the children, and uh, I knew that that was the most important thing in the president's life, so I was, you know, willing to do that job. You know, at that time in, in America, you know, Camelot, we, we certainly romanticize it. It's, it we were such a, a young nation then and, and, and so pure and so many things that it, it just started to unfold, you know. A uh, young president, a beautiful first lady, these beautiful kids. Uh, we were the good guys in every way. And, uh, you know, that, that day, and, and I don't want to jump too far forward in the discussion just yet, but that day it just changed everything for, for, for everyone. Well, it was a day that changed everything all over the world. It was uh, everything stopped for four days in that period of time, and I call it the age of the end of in- innocence because yeah. really everything changed from that point forward. Yeah, you... And I think this is really interesting about you. You were born uh, in North Dakota. Your mother uh, immediately turned you over to a children's home, and that's that's where you were raised. That's right. I was, well, I was only there about three months before I was adopted. I was very fortunate. You uh, you fast forward through and into the military. How did you become a Secret Service agent? Well, when I went in the Army, the Army decided that, uh, I don't know why, but they decided I should be uh, trained as a agent in, in intelligence. So I was sent to the Army Intelligence Center. And I became a special agent in the counterintelligence corps. And I stayed in that organization for three years. I loved the work, the investigative work. And so I wanted to pursue it after I left the Army. And a vacancy eventually opened up in the Secret Service office in Denver. There were only 269 agents worldwide in the Secret Service at that time. So it was very difficult to get a job in the organization. But I was fortunate somebody retired. And I was offered that job and glad, really was glad to take it. And you took it for honor. You, you don't get rich being no. a Secret Service agent back then. No. I mean, <laughs> or, or today, I imagine. But then it, we talk about the book. You know, when, once you were introduced and you brought in, you, 12 bucks a day. Was That's, a, that was our living expense for, that was what we paid for, for were given to pay for the room, uh, food, laundry, dry cleaning. Everything had to be paid for out of that $12 a day. What, what do they tell you when you, they come to you and say, well, you're going to be part of the presidential secret service. What, what's, what are the directives they give you that where they say, listen, this is, you must be willing to lay your life down. You must at all costs protect. I mean, they don't really tell you that you assume that when you take the job, when you're sworn in. And then in my case, uh, within one year, 
I was sent back to the White House detail from the investigative unit in Denver for an evaluation. They kept me there for 30 days, put me through a lot of things, and then sent me back to Denver and uh, ran the evaluation. And then they decided, yep, this is one of the guys we want. So they brought me back to the White House. And I never really left my entire career. And you... uh, you, you go through your genuine love for the family. And, and for Jackie, you can see your fondness, your genuine uh, protective nature, uh, your uh, respect for her. And she came to really respect you. And, and she allowed you much closer than I think a lot of other Secret Service ever got to her on a personal level, as on a friendship level. Oh, uh, true. And she was a very private person. She didn't, a lot of, didn't like a lot of an entourage. And so over a period of time after uh, she really began to trust me, when we'd go overseas, for example, instead of her bringing secretaries for uh, public affairs or sec- personal secretaries, she asked me to do all those things, which I did gladly. And uh, so it would be she and me and her personal assistant. That would be it. And you, uh, it's funny because in the book, there's a pivotal moment just right in the beginning where she says, pull the car over. Could you please pull the car over? And you're wondering, what, what must the president's wife want from me while she's in the back of this car? And ultimately, she just... Well, I, I thought she wanted either to tell me something extremely private, didn't want the driver to hear it, or she was going to complain about something. Mm-hmm. And we, I got into the back seat, and she said, uh, oh, Mr. Hill, she said, uh, could I have one of your cigarettes? <laughs> and I had no idea she smoked. And so I offered her a cigarette. She said, no, would you light it for me? So I lit the cigarette. It was a Valiant. Give it to her. It was an L&M. Oh, L&M. <laughs> and uh, from that point on, I, I was her enabler. And <laughs> she, she, she smoked whenever she and I had the opportunity to be in private. And you and you would also travel with her. You know, you were you were brought into the family. JFK trusted you with his most prized possession, his children and his wife. Uh, but... Uh, the first time you met President Kennedy, what, what was what was that? What was the meeting? I met him in 1960 at Thanksgiving time. He had been in Florida and returned to uh, Washington to spend Thanksgiving with uh, Mrs. Kennedy and Caroline. Uh, John had not been born yet, and Mrs. Kennedy was very pregnant at the time. And when he came back, Mrs. Kennedy introduced me to him, telling the president uh, in what I had done apparently previous to my introduction because his remarks were, well, Thank you for taking such good care of Mrs. Kennedy. I understand you and she do a lot of walking and she really appreciates it. And I immediately recognized the charisma this man had and I liked him immediately. Yeah. And he always displayed that. You never saw a a darker side. He was always that that straightforward good guy. Always that way. And he always knew he knew every agent's name, first name, and he knew their family situation. He was very personal. I'd been with Eisenhower. And Eisenhower was a general, and we were the troops. And when Eisenhower wanted you, it was, hey, agent. It wasn't a name. With Kennedy, it was by a first-name basis. Wow. So she decides she wants to travel. And, and Jackie is young, and she, she wants to live. She wants to explore. She wants to go to India. She wants to go to, to Greece. She wants to, to be out and, and not be you know in this cocoon. And it's a tough time because she's the president's wife and and you have to protect her and you have to you have to guard her against uh, everything from uh, you know a terrorist to the press very true um he pulls you into the office the oval and he says you're going to go to greece at all i I do not want jackie to cross paths with aristotle onassis those were my instructions yes and that was in 1961 
first time we went to Greece. I had no idea as to why, and I really tried to understand that a little bit more. I had a, a, one of the agents that I was working with was of a Greek origin, in fact, had family in Greece, and he was working with me, and we tried to forget it. The only thing we could come up with was the fact that Onassis at the time was in legal trouble with the United States and had been uh, had to pay a $7 million fine or some such. Mm-hmm. And I think from a political point of view, it just didn't look good for her to be associated with anybody like that. So, and of course, she ended up marrying Aristotle uh, in 68. Were you surprised? Right. Shocked. Yeah, yeah. I'd been warned that it was kind of, that, that was going to happen, but I was still shocked. Well, in the shenanigans, it's, it's, if you go forward, um, the second time you went to Greece, I believe. Uh, 1963. And then you ended up on the boat on a yacht with Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. this was right after she lost uh, young Patrick. Patrick, that's Patrick right. died in August, and uh, she went into a depression. So her friends suggested she might want to get out of the country for a while and travel because she loved to go to the Mediterranean. And uh, Aristotle Onassis made the, his yacht to Christina available. He was on board, but we and we were on board for oh, about 10 days or so and traveled through the Greek islands up into Turkey. And it was a wonderful experience. He tried to get cute, though, at the end. I mean, he, he was going to he wanted to test your metal a little bit. Very much so. He and I didn't get along too well. I didn't think much of him and I'm not I'm sure he didn't think much of me. And uh, he tested me at the end. He they were supposed to come ashore at a certain point. And I had gone ashore ahead and made it, made sure that the transportation was available. I was standing and waiting for them by the on the shoreline with the cars, and the boat. They uh, they left the yacht on some smaller craft and started for what appeared to be my destination. And all of a sudden, he veered off to the one different direction. Fortunately for me, I had a guy working with me who was from Athens, and he knew the area very well, and he knew exactly where he was going. So he screamed at me to jump in the car, and away we went, and we beat him to the point. And when they the arrived there— you could do that by a car, you know, to beat a, a fast-moving boat in a car in Athens, those little ditty tiny streets like that, and be standing on the shore. Well, we, it was an area, a situation where he had to go around a point to get to where we were going, apparently. And uh, we got there ahead of him, and when they got up, got to that point— and, they disembarked and came ashore. He was not too happy about what happened. That's great. And uh, all Mrs. Kennedy said to me was, uh, nice save, Mr. Hill. <laughs> That's got to be a great feeling. It was. He uh, And so you guys, you spent uh, so many uh, summers together. You spent uh, you know holidays together. You, you were there. You were part of their family, very much so. And the kids, you were there for, for John and for Carolyn. And uh, you, you think about, and they were always always good kids you, they were always asked to treat you with nothing but respect and to address you correctly and, and they never anything except that correct that's correct she insisted that they they treat all their elders with respect and the agents she, they children called us by their you know mr hill or mr landis mr foster mr meredith mr wells whoever they were addressing there was nothing ever more than that and uh, we got to the point we we thought maybe they thought we were uncles or something because right. We were always there, and whenever the family was all together, we were part of it. Yeah, the fifty-mile fitness hike that uh, <laughs> JFK came up with. There was what was the rule? There was a rule that uh, they had put in place that the officers must always be in the military, always be able to make a fifty-mile hike. Well, this and, was, this went way back, apparently, to uh, Teddy Roosevelt's time when he had challenged the military to stay in shape, and apparently uh, President Kennedy had read about it. 
and thought, well, this is a pretty good program. And he went to the head of the Marine Corps and had it, wanted it instituted. And so they started it. And uh, then his brother, Robert Kennedy, thought, well, this is a good challenge. So he did it. Took him 17 hours. So then apparently the president was talking to his brother-in-law, Prince Stanislaus Radziwill, and a very good friend, Chuck Spaulding. Known as Stash, correct? Yes, that was. And uh, he challenged them to do this for a small wager, Mm. apparently. And uh, I had no knowledge of this. Poor bastard. One evening I get a telephone call. And Mrs. Kennedy's on the line, and she said, oh, Mr. Hill, the president and I would like to have you do something for us. And I asked her what it was, and she said, uh, you know, Prince Radziwill is down here, and Chuck Spaulding is down here, and they're going to go on a 50-mile hike. And we'd like to have you go along, because we're going to come out there and visit them periodically. We know the Secret Service has to have somebody out there in advance, and we'd like it to be you, because we know you'll take care of them. Well, I was stunned, to say the least, because I had no preparation for this. Well, and your, what shoes are you wearing? Well, I had the best shoes I thought for the job were the most sturdy ones I had. They were a, play, a pair of dress floor shines. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I wore. Oh. And we we started out at around midnight, Friday night, and we finally made it to... Uh, the end of the 50-mile point, and uh, during that process, the president came out and joked with us periodically, and Mrs. Kennedy and her sister came out and was giving everybody a bad time, trying to eager, eagerly get us to continue because I think everybody's about ready to quit. Sure. But we managed to make it. You uh, and, and one of the things you cherish most uh, afterwards, uh, President Kennedy brought you in, and he had handwritten and, and made a... Uh, a ribbon for you. Yeah, he had made a little medal and uh, it with a paper uh, chain on it and put it around my neck and it said uh, for Dazzle, that was my code name. Uh, the Pacemaker Award, I think it's called. Order of the Pacemaker. The Order of the Pacemaker, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's what a, and there's a picture of it in the book, but what a thing to still have, you, and you still have it. I still have it, yes. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It really is. It's, and uh, is it, what, a, what a cool guy to, to, to really think that through and, and, and to make a, a presentation to you. Yeah, it was very special. It really was. Now, uh, you know, you move forward uh, to that day in, in Dallas and, uh, you know, everybody knew the South wasn't necessarily super friendly for, for, for John F. Kennedy. It was a problem. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a choice that could be made. If there was inclement weather, you could put the bubble on. It was a plexiglass bubble. I don't know if it was it bulletproof. No, or just, it was not. It was strictly <clears throat> but, plexiglass. But, but, it, but it, it may have helped that day. Who knows? Um, but the choice was made to not. It was he very much liked to, to touch people, to be close to them, to shake hands. And, he knew, and he knew that it was important to get reelected. Oh, I, it, he found it necessary. He never liked to have that bubble on uh, unless it were raining mm-hmm. or if she were in the car and it was going to be windy. Or I know once in Mexico City, we used it after we had been to Mexico City and we got so much confetti, the next day they, he asked that the bubble be on just for, as a matter of keeping the confetti off Mrs. Kennedy. But in this occasion, he wanted to be nothing, there'd be nothing between him and the people in Dallas. So, And guys, so that's what we did. You took off and you were in Houston the day before? Been in Houston the, the afternoon before and then in Fort Worth, and we went from Fort Worth to Dallas. Now that morning, uh, you guys get up by... 
Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You flew in. It was in the afternoon. We flew in to uh, <clears throat> Dallas in the morning. Right. And uh, that day, uh, everything seemed normal. Nobody. We, day was beautiful. Perfect day. Nice, sunny, beautiful, bright day. The uh, crowd response was great. It was tremendous. Uh, number of people that came out to see President and Mrs. Kennedy, and they were very receptive. There was no indication of a problem at all. Miss Kennedy is in the in the left rear. JFK's in the right. Uh, governor in the front. Uh, where's his wife? His wife is it's right in front of Mrs. Kennedy in the jump seat. And you're behind. And and these these cars were built. They were very very heavy. Uh, so they didn't accelerate very fast. You would walk behind sometimes. He didn't like it when you guys would ride up next to him. Not no, because he didn't like it because that was an indication to him that the people might think that we were trying. There was something between them and mm-hmm. him, and he didn't want that to be the case. Um, so as you approach Dealey Plaza, and you and I, I went there for the first time last year, and I'd never gone. I'd seen the Zapruder film, and I'd seen the photographs like everybody has. Those are infamous and uh, legendary photographs. Uh, I didn't realize how small it was. The distance between when you when you emerge from those buildings and that crosswalk, the book building behind you to the right, the the median to the left, the the grassy hill, the knoll they call it on the right, and the bridge above. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really short distance. It is very short. Short from the window on the sixth floor to the impact area is a very short distance. And uh, you know they mark on the street where the car was when the first shot. Correct. Uh, what at that moment what. From when you were behind, what did you see? What? How did it play out? Well, I was in the car immediately behind the presidential vehicle. I was on the left-hand side on a running board. And I was looking to my left, which is a grassy area. There weren't many people out there. Mm-hmm. And when I heard the the noise, the explosive noise, which came over my right shoulder, my rear, uh, and the rear of the motorcade, my scan or my vision took me from looking over the grassy area to my right toward the sound of the explosive noise, and my eyes went across the back of the car. When that happened, I saw the president grab at his throat and move to his left. I knew something was wrong. He was in trouble. Right. So that's when I jumped and ran toward the presidential car. I was trying to get up on top of the presidential car to form a barrier, a shield, between President and Mrs. Kennedy and whoever was trying to do them harm. And when I was running, they tell me there was a second shot. I didn't hear it. As I approached the car, there was a third shot. That hit the president in the head right above the right ear, just a little bit to the rear. And it opened up such a wound that uh, blood and brain matter and bone fragments came spewing out over the car, myself. Then I tried to get up, and the driver started to accelerate slowly, but the car doesn't move too fast. I slipped, then I regained myself, got up on the, started to get up on the car. At this point, Mrs. Kennedy came up on the trunk. She was trying to grab some of the material that came off the president's head and had gone off the right rear of the car. She didn't even know I was there. When I got up there, I grabbed her a little bit and put her in the back seat. When I got her into the back seat, the president's body fell to its left into her lap. And his head was, the right side of his head was up exposed to me. I could see the hole in the upper right rear of his head right into the brain. Looked like somebody had scooped out portions of the brain and just scattered around the car. His eyes were fixed. I assumed it was a fatal wound, and I turned and gave a thumbs down to the follow-up car crew to tell them that we were in a dire situation. And she she yelled, "They shot his! They shot his head off!" And that's what she said. Yes. At such a that moment, uh, I can't even imagine being there, uh, knowing that at that moment though you had to get Jackie out of the situation. You didn't know what was going on, how many shooters there might be, who it was, and where it came from. We knew it came from the right rear, but we didn't know exactly where. <laughs> 
We had no idea what exactly the situation was. We just wanted to evacuate the area. Do you believe there's any chance that it was more than one shooter, that it was anybody other than Lee Harvey Oswald, I have he no, made all those shots? Yeah, I have no reason to believe there's any more than one shooter, three shots, all from the same location, same gun. Why do you think the conspiracy theories uh, build so so heavily? Why, why do you think so many people believe there was multiple shooters? I think the primary reason is nobody can believe that one person can do that. And I think that the the ballistic idea that that you know most of us our idea of of a, of a shooting is you know a small entrance and a large exit. Mm-hmm. So the back of his head coming off would logically say the shot came from a forward position. But that ent- that uh, wound in the in his head, the the bullet did, didn't enter the head. Pretty much, it it it, it kind of glanced off. And it left a big a wound, and it formed kind of like a uh, flap of the scalp. Scalp never, there was a part of, it, part of it that remained attached, and the flap of the scalp went forward. And I think you see that in the film pretty much. If you really mm-hmm. slow it down, you'll see the flap of the, of the scalp go forward, and you'll see brain matter and blood come spewing out. That's the reddish stuff that mm-hmm. you'll see in the, photo, in the pictures. So... There was. I've never had any doubt that there was only three shots, one shooter, all in the same location, and uh, I think it's pretty pretty well proven by everything. And that, you know, if there was a conspiracy, you can't keep a secret that long. In a conspiracy, you usually can find out within a month mm-hmm. that there has been a conspiracy. In this case, it's been a long time. It's been almost fifty years. I think we're because Lee Harvey Oswald was then killed by Jack Ruby. I think we, I think we we want there to be a conspiracy because we, there's no answer and we don't we don't know why we it was it was such a uh, like you said the age of innocence was over, uh, and because he was then killed and the answers will never come out as to why and why he did it. You know Jack Ruby thought he was going to be a hero because of what he did. Sure. He really did a disservice to everyone because he took the life of the guy who, who had the answer. Yeah. We would have found out exactly why. So you're on your way to the hospital. Um, you guys pull in. You know that you, you've, you've got to at least protect the memory, the moment. Uh, you cover the president's body with your coat. Uh, yes. You get Miss Kennedy out of, the hospital, out, of the, out of the car and you tell her you're going to take care of it. Uh, and, and you guys move, you move him into the hospital. And we took him into the emergency room. Well, first, we had to remove Governor Connolly from the car because... Oh, he didn't was, even know he'd been shot. No, I didn't at first. And then yeah. when he moved one time, I noticed his front of his chest was all covered with blood. And then uh, the way that car is configured, you can't get the rear seat passenger out unless you move the jump seat forward if it's occupied. And so we had to get the governor out because he was sitting right in front of the president, move the jump seat forward, and then get the president out. So that's what we did. They took the governor into one emergency room first, and then we took the president into one right next to it after that. And uh, the doctors at Parkland, they did everything they could. They were working feverishly trying to uh, revive him, but uh, there was nothing they could do. At one point, they, they came out and uh, they said, he's still breathing. Yes. And that's, you knew it was a mortal wound. Well, I, I, I was sure that, the, that it was strictly a muscular reaction or something because what I saw, there was no chance of a, he was still alive. Imagine being in that situation, the the doctors trying to save the, the most loved president we've ever had, uh, his wife, soon-to-be widow, in the in the waiting room. You're 
now forced to make some very direct, serious, quick decisions. You've got to get him back to Washington. Now, they want to grandstand a little bit, it seems like. You know, they're saying because it was a homicide in Texas, they, that the president's body must stay there. And that's that's when it got real serious. Secret Service, no, it's not going to happen this way. How how quick? It, it was tense. Uh, they had the law on their side. There was no question about that. We knew that. But we also knew that this was the president of all the people, and we wanted to take him back to the nation's capital where we could do an autopsy in a, in a really a good facility. And uh, they didn't want us to do that. We eventually... Did it anyway. Yeah, at that point, I, I can only imagine that it, it must have felt like you know this. We don't. We're not going to leave our man behind. We won't. We will not. We will not. And and I don't believe there was ever a chance you weren't going to leave with the president that day. Oh, there was no chance that whatsoever. We we knew we were going to go. It's just a matter of when. So you have to uh, order a, a casket. Um, where's Miss Kennedy at this point? She is standing outside the emergency room. You uh, you have to go out and and. At what point do you direct your attention back to her? Well, when I came back, they, when I was asked to look, find a casket and have it brought to the hospital, uh, the hospital administrative people took me to a little room off to the side and gave me a phone and get me to get, put me in touch with a mortuary when I called a ca- for a casket. Then when I came back in, uh, I checked on Mrs. Kenny. I, my assistant, Paul Landis, was with her all the time. You, uh, there was a, a, a bit of hair. Was there, uh, no, there, that was on the following Sunday, the in, following Sunday. in Washington at okay. the White House. So you've got to get him back on the Air Force One. Right. You've got a casket, and there's the picture of you guys lifting the president, that heavy casket, uh, up the stair. You have to walk up. There's no walkway like we know now. You're climbing stairs to go up. Uh, and the coffin won't go through the door. Yes, it was a little bit too wide. We had, you know, they hadn't configured an aircraft thinking that they were going to load a casket on right. it, and we hadn't taken into consideration the width of the door when we bought when we had the casket purchase. So when we got to that point, we just ripped the handles off the casket and got it through the door. That's got to be just a moment. Just what else could go, you know? Well, that's it. Things were not going very well for us that day. And you you make it back to Washington, and of course, I. Then one of the, uh, you know, most terrible days in American history, you know, the day we buried JFK and that, that long walk, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, his children were there. And, uh, and that was John's yeah. third birthday. Oh, well, that picture will still bring tears to your eyes. That's Miss Kennedy decided she would walk. Uh, Absolutely. Um, she insisted on it. And of course, everybody must have melted down at that moment. Was that just that shot of her picture of uh, young John saluting his father's. Uh, what was it? Was it an admiral that taught him to salute? It was a marine colonel. A colonel. Okay. Well, the agents had tried, and they had been somewhat successful. But it, she had asked that we train him to do that because the president was going to go to Ar- to Arlington National Cemetery on November 11th, and she wanted John to go along to witness him being. Playing playing wreath at Arlington and also being honored with the military and John loved the military and so the the point was to have John salute his father when the military did at uh, Arlington and he did and he's standing there so small three years old those little short pants and that little jacket and that little face and and it, it, it still chokes me up to think about it yeah it choked everybody up when it happened right there on the steps of St Matthew's Cathedral nobody after this um 
And one of the things I thought was so amazing, uh, and Jackie still, she didn't blame you. She didn't blame any of the servicemen. She still wanted you near her. You were her guy for her and her kids after after all of this. And, and it would have been easily for someone through their grief and, and their pain to, to, to lash out at somebody. It would be, but it wasn't the case. And she did uh, want me with her for, and I stayed with her for one more year until after the election in 1964. And in 1964, there were no, you, there was no grief counseling for you. No, we didn't have any counseling whatsoever, and we didn't have anybody to replace us for days off either. So we just continued to work day after day. How did it affect you? How, how, how was it when you went home at night before you closed your eyes? What was, what was it you'd think? It ate at me. The sight of the president lying in her lap with a hole in his head and his eyes fixed, that's still in my brain and my mind, and it will never go away. You know, the, the, the testament to your bravery and your heroism is is the love Jackie has and had or had for you. She wrote that note to the director, and I read in the book, and I, and I, I, I got choked up reading that because I thought, man, what an what a outstanding human being she was. What, what, a, what a beautiful person to, to, to write that in, you know, because it was a big deal. The president, before he passed away, he knew that after uh, you know, Secret Service guys didn't end up moving forward very well you know after all their great service it was just kind of a letdown career-wise afterwards absolutely and she was concerned and he was as well that those agents that were assigned to the children and those of us who were assigned to mrs kennedy be considered for promotion because we had done our very best to make their life in the white house as good as it could be you uh and so the years after that and and so you and jackie part ways what was the last conversation you had with her? Last time I had a real conversation with her, other than on the phone, was in, 19, in November 1964 when I left. And she just thanked me and uh, wished me well. And she also had written a letter to another letter to Secretary of the Treasury saying that if she were to travel, uh, would it be possible to make me available to accompany her, specifically overseas? Could you have loved them anymore, more than, than your own family? Well, I, I had a great deal of respect for him and admiration for him. Love is a little bit strong, yeah. but... Because uh, in the book, it really does feel that way. When you, when you, the way you talk about her, and, and not in a romantic love, I'm talking about yeah. like a, in a, in an uncle, a protective uh, over the children. When Patrick uh, died, you know, uh, when you run through that story, it's as though somebody in your family is... Well, that's the way almost all of the agents that were there, at least those of us that were with Mrs. Kennedy and the children took it, and most of the agents with him, too, I think, because it was almost like we lost a son of our own. Uh, we had gone through the pregnancy with her, and uh, the end result was a, a baby, a young boy was born, and he just only lived for two days. This uh, The book, Miss Kennedy and Me, Clinton Hill, Special Agent, United States Secret Service, uh, an outstanding book. It really is a great, great uh, uh, chronicle of, of what happened that day, you know, and so many people have so many questions, and it's uh, the internet is rife with conspiracy. The only way I think I was ever going to feel like I had some knowledge of it was to meet you and, and have you come in the studio and to talk to you about what happened that day at Dealey Plaza. And I, I got to tell you, I, I can't thank you enough for coming in here today. Well, I'm glad that we I was able to come here today. And I hope that anybody who wants to come to the uh, Unity Temple tonight to uh, be glad to sign their books. and That'd be great. What, we, you go, you're going to be there at what, 7 o'clock tonight? 7 o'clock. They have to get tickets through uh, Rainy Day Books. But it, uh, 
be delighted to see them. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, before you leave, I know that you've got to run. You're going to do television today. Uh, and I, If you'd sign my book, I would love that. Would It'd be, be my honor to do that. Thank you so much for coming in today. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Off Air with Johnny Dare. Off Air with Johnny Dare.